Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you today. We have had a busy week uh, this week. Um, my nephew, Josh, many of you know Josh very well, uh, was married Friday evening. And this is a picture of his ceremony. It was beautiful and it was a crazy amount of work. Um, but we, we had a good time. We got back yesterday. But, you know, as I was thinking about uh, our sermon for today, it made me think about the whole process of getting engaged and, and getting married. Uh, that, you know, what happens now in, in our culture today and, and how different it was uh, from before. You see, Josh uh, asked his wife, now wife, Taryn, to marry him just a few months ago, and they, they set the, the venue and got all the arrangements together, and, and we had a, a great time, and, um, you know, it was, it was a great, great service and uh, opportunity for our families to get together, and um, just a, a wonderful time. And I'm, I, as I'm sitting there, Joanna and I are looking at each other, and we're, we're talking about, okay, what can we learn from this? Because in a little under a year, we've got to do this ourselves. And so what, what can we figure that out about how to have a wedding? And, you know, there's so much planning that went into the engagement of, of Caleb and Macy, and, and we were so excited about that, but that's just kind of the beginning, you know? And, and so we're, we're going through all of this, and, and then I'm, I think about, you know, everything that we do as far as the process of, of getting married, it was completely and totally different back in biblical times. You see, back in biblical times, in the first century, especially in Jewish culture, the father of the groom would approach the father of the bride-to-be, and they would have a conversation. But it didn't really, it wasn't really a, a you know, just a conversation. It was more like a negotiation. They would go and they would have this negotiation on the arrangement between their children. And, you know, this would usually happen shortly after a boy or a girl went through puberty. Young teenager. Uh, and, you know, totally different situation. Uh, meaning that they would be given in marriage you know, as young as 13, 14, 15 years old. So once the families had agreed in that arrangement, an announcement would be made about their betrothal. And, you know, all the people in the, in the community would know that so-and-so was betrothed uh, to someone else. In, a, in some ways, this is like our engagement, but it was so much more than what we know now as an engagement. You know, an engagement is we intend to get married, but it's not too late to get out of this, you know? Um, you know, it, an engagement is not a binding contract, but back in first century uh, Jewish culture, a, a betrothal, was very much a contract between two families and two individuals. They were considered legally bound to one another, even though they had not yet cons 
consummated their marriage. They were legally bound to one another. Um, and they would usually wait for several months after the betrothal, before the wedding, uh, the official wedding ceremony would take place, uh, which allowed the bride and the groom uh, and their families to prepare for all the different things needed for that celebration. Now, interestingly, you know, the legal binding of these two at the point of betrothal was so tight. I didn't know this before I did some study this week, um, that if the husband-to-be or the bride-to-be were to pass away during that time of betrothal, before the consummation of this marriage, even still, then the other person would be considered a widow or a widower. You see, this was a legal binding contract when we talk about being betrothed to one another. This is the status of Mary and Joseph's relationship at the time in which an angel approached her in Luke chapter 1. And so if you want to be looking that direction, we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 1 and spending most of our time there in Luke 1 today. You see, they have been betrothed, but they have not yet celebrated with a wedding ceremony. And because they've not yet celebrated with a wedding ceremony, they have also not consummated their marriage. So while waiting for her wedding day, an angel appeared to Mary to explain uh, what was about to happen to her. Now, in Luke chapter 1, it tells us that the angel uh, appeared to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. This concept of being a favored one is an important one. It, it is a concept that we uh, have to look back to our original text to understand what is what does it mean to be a favored one. And this word favor comes from a word that we've talked about many times uh, in our studies here at Temple. It's the word charis, that's the root word, which is our word that we get grace. Now this particular word that's used here the, as being favored one or has found favor, it's a, a passive participle that's formed from that root word charis or grace, the unmerited favor. Of God. Now, because of its passive voice in this uh, construct that we find, the, the, um, the grammar of it, because of its passive voice, the, the grace that is spoken of here is a grace that is encompassing Mary. You see, God is pursuing her with his honor and with his blessing. It's not something that that she's looking for. I mean, it says that Mary found favor uh, with God in verse 30 of chapter 1 of Luke. It, it would be a disservice to this text to infer that she was looking for God's favor, but rather that favor was thrust upon her. That grace was given to her. It encompassed her. She was endued with this special offer, uh, this, this special honor 
She was a recipient of God's grace. God pursued her with his grace. And so this morning, as we continue our study uh, through the cast of Christmas, these different characters that, that are, uh, make up this narrative, the nativity narrative, we're going to be focusing on the interaction that Mary had with this angel, Gabriel, as well as the interaction she had with her cousin, Elizabeth. All of this from Luke chapter 1. We're going to look specifically at Mary's character, as well as the struggles that she experienced, the, the social, the mental, and the emotional struggles as she carried the promised Christ child, the Messiah. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to look at Luke chapter 1, or if you're utilizing the Version Bible app, let's take a look there, and we're going to begin reading this morning in verse 26. And um, in case uh, I seem a little discombobulated this morning, uh, my, my device got signed out of my Dropbox, and now I'm having to use paper notes and this is this is difficult for me so um y'all y'all pray that uh, that i can figure out how to get my ipad back and working this week it'll be a blessing so let's look at what scripture says in luke 1 we'll begin in verse 26 and read for now up through verse 38 Bible says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he, the angel, came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. And tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, this morning, there are five aspects of Mary's character and calling that I want us to consider. And so the first thing that we notice is this. That is the prophecy of 
a virgin mother. It is a well-known fact that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. This was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7, which was one of the major prophets. This was a, a prophecy that was well known that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7 verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This verse does not specifically refer to the Christ or to the Messiah or the anointed one, but it calls this child that is born of a virgin a significant name, Emmanuel. Which, what does that mean? God with us. You see, it literally meant that God was going to condescend to this earth and become a man. Therefore, when it's saying that this this God-man would be born of a virgin, we know that this was referring to the Messiah. So why is this so important? Why is this truth about uh, the Messiah being born of a virgin so important? Well, if we look at Romans chapter 5, and I'm not going to, to read a lot of Romans chapter 5, but if you're unfamiliar with it, I would encourage you to read the whole chapter. But if you look at Romans chapter 5, it clearly explains that the sin nature of man is passed on to every person through the Father. It is my responsibility, it is my, it, I am the cause behind my children's sin. Not Joanna's, right? Yeah. Ladies, you can hold on to that one. You know, use that against your husband, I guess. I don't know. But that's the way God set it up. It is through the man that the sin nature is passed on. Verse 12 of Romans 5 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, referring to Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Why? You know, I don't know if you're familiar with this, this question or not, but we always discussed when I was growing up and learning more and more about Scripture, uh, do we sin because we're sinners or are we sinners because we sin? And the answer is yes. <laughs> you see, I sin because John Henry Allen was a sinner and passed that sin nature on to me. But I'm a sinner because... I choose you know, on a regular basis to sin myself. And that's the case with all of us. We are sinners because that nature has been passed on to us. In Romans 5, 17, it says, For if because of one man's trespass or one man's sin, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So just as sin has been passed on to us from Adam through his son and his son down to my father, to me, and now to my son and my daughter, that sin has been passed on. But the free gift of eternal life is given to us. 
That abundance of grace has been offered to us through the person of Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin and therefore did not have that sin nature passed on. He had the ability to sin, but he had the ability to not sin and therefore lived a perfect life. And that's actually a discussion some of you may disagree with me on. Did Jesus have the ability to sin or did he not? I'm not going to discuss that this morning. Um, the fact is, is he lived a perfect life. He was born of a virgin. Verse 19 of Romans 5 says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So it's imperative that we believe in this doctrine of the virgin birth or this teaching of the virgin birth because it is the passing, sin is passed on from the father to a child. And by being born of a virgin, this would be bypassed in Jesus. Now, when considering prophecies of the Messiah last week, I, I said this. I said, when it comes to prophecy, there will be teachings that we may not understand or that seemingly do not make sense. But that does not mean that they are not true. So once again, we have clear prophetic teaching in the Old Testament that goes against common sense. It goes against human logic. There will be a, a child born of a virgin. That makes no sense. Yet nonetheless, it is true. Folks, there are aspects of the Christian faith where we simply must take God at his word. That's why it's called faith. We must trust him. The teaching of the virgin birth is one such doctrine. It is integral to our system of beliefs, but lies outside the realm of human comprehension. And so because of that, people do not readily accept this idea of a virgin birth. And you know what? Back 2,000 years ago, people did not readily accept the idea of this pregnant teenage girl who insisted that she had never been with a man. They thought she was lying. I'm sure the whole ordeal became quite the scandal in that little town of Nazareth. A tremendous ordeal for a young teenage girl to have to deal with. So the second thing I want us to notice this morning is the controversy of a pregnant fiance. You see, Mary, in our, what we read just a moment ago in verse 34, she looked to the angel when he said, you're going to give birth to a, a child. She had one question. And you know what? It's a legitimate question. She said, how will this be? I've never known a man. I'm still a virgin. How in the world am I going to be giving birth to a child? Well, the angel answered her in verse 35, but, you know, frankly, the details are pretty vague. Uh, he said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Ultimately, we find 
the answer to her question in verse 37. Nothing is impossible with God, Mary. It's going to, don't worry, it's going to happen. God's going to take care of it. Nothing is impossible with God. There is a, a book written by Marjorie Holmes. It's 50 years old, published in 1972 originally. It's a book called Two from Galilee. And in that book, she, she helps us to see Mary and Joseph and her family. It, it, it's uh, biblical fiction, you know, just historical biblical fiction. But it helps us to see them from a, a more human point of view. And, and so one of the things she wrote in that book was this. Said, spiritual though the child in her womb might be. Obviously the, the, the conception of this child was a spiritual thing uh, that happened. But spiritual as though the child in her womb might be, God had seen fit to grip her flesh and give it substance. Purely human symptoms that would, not, that would soon be evident to all eyes. Her parents, Joseph, his people. What then? What then? You see, folks, yes, this was a, an immaculate conception. It was... Something that happened through the Holy Spirit of God overshadowing her and, and placing this child in her womb. But she went through everything that any other pregnant woman is going through. The transformation of her body. And she was a young teenage girl who had no husband. She was frightened. And confused. She did not understand. She could only pray blindly. Help me. Help me Lord. Help me to be worthy of this thing. That you've done to me. And these others. Help them to understand. Those people that are so dear to me. Help them understand. Help them when the time comes to know. Lord, don't, don't let them cast me out. Ostracize me. There was no way that Mary could avoid this controversy. There was no way for her to avoid the shame that would result from her being pregnant before her wedding day. She was betrothed to Joseph. But she had not yet consummated that marriage. Can you imagine what Mary must have been going through? Can you imagine that process of trying to convince her parents that, yes, I'm expecting a baby, but I'm innocent, I'm pure, I have not known a man. Can you imagine having that conversation with your dad? Would they believe her? What would Joseph think? This man that she had pledged her life and her purity to, what would he think when she had to tell him, I'm expecting, I am with child. 
I mean, of course, he would feel betrayed. But would he believe this fantastical tale that Mary would tell him? Well, we'll talk about Joseph next week. But what about the rumor mill that is every small town and every village in the world? Can you imagine what kind of buzz would be going around that little town of Nazareth when it became known that Mary, this wonderful, wonderful girl who had grown up there, was now pregnant outside of marriage? What would people say? How would she be treated? Would she be ostracized from her friends? Would she be ostracized from her family? Or would she be ostracized from her fiancé? And what about those who were zealous for keeping the letter of the law of Moses? Do you know what the law of Moses said about adultery? Over and over again, in multiple places in the Old Testament, the Bible clearly teaches that the punishment for adultery is death. Death by stoning. Now, an adulterer is someone who is married or betrothed that commits sexual immorality, such as becoming pregnant outside the bonds of marriage. By definition, from the outside looking in, Mary was absolutely guilty of adultery, and yet she was innocent. Folks, the social, the cultural, the familial, as well as the religious repercussions of her situation would have been completely overwhelming to anyone. But especially for a hormone-driven, pregnant, unmarried teenage girl who was living in a strict first-century Jewish home, can you imagine what she was going through? And yet... Notice her response to the angel that we see in verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In the face of all these things, the, the pressures, the social, the cultural, the religious the family pressures that she was facing. Mary stood there and said, I am here to serve. Let's do this. Her tenacity is mind-boggling. That's the fourth or third thing I want us to look at this morning is this the tenacity of this young woman. You see, Mary did not seem surprised that the Messiah was to come. That wasn't the surprise that we find here in this passage. The surprise was that she would be the one who was his mother. She knew scripture. She knew that the, that, uh, the Messiah was to come. As we'll see in a few minutes when we look at verses 46 through 56. Uh, this section that's referred to as the Magnificat. Mary felt blessed to be the chosen vessel 
to carry the Christ child. But she also felt unworthy. She was humbled by this honor. And it's interesting to note here that the angel, when Mary asked, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel did not rebuke her as he had rebuked Zechariah in verse 20 of this chapter. When, when he questioned uh, the angel about uh, whether or not he, he and his older wife were going to be able to have a child. So the angel did not rebuke Mary, and that to me indicates that, that Mary wasn't doubting the angel's word. She just wanted to know how this is going to be accomplished. You know, I think we learn a lot, we could learn a lot from Mary, uh, from her uh, reaction here to the angel. How many times do we doubt or question the Lord when faced with harrowing situations? You know, Scripture is silent about all the things that m she might have faced during this time of her pregnancy. I'm pulling a lot of this information based on the culture of the day and, and different research. But we can deduce that it was going to be a difficult season for her based on what the text says next. You see in verse 39, we'll read all of it in a moment. It says that, Right after this, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah. She got out of Nazareth. It said, in haste. Verse 56, it said, and Mary remained with her cousin Elizabeth for about three months and then returned to her home. You see, Mary had run away from Nazareth to get out of the scandal, to get away from the controversy, and went to stay with her cousin Elizabeth, the one the angel had told her was expecting a child as well, who we know is, was John the Baptist. She went and she stayed there for three months, assuming she stayed there until John was born. And then it said, and she returned to her home. The Greek text is very specific here. She did not go and live with her betrothed, she went back to the home of her parents, indicating that she was still a virgin, that she had, was not yet married to Joseph, that she was living in this shame and disgrace. Let's look at what the scripture says in verse 39 through 45. It says, in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The fourth thing I want us to think about this morning is the legitimacy of 
of the pregnancy. We all have heard of an illegitimate child, right? You, have, you understand what that is. It's a, a child that is born outside the, the bond of marriage. It, the child is illegitimate because the mother and the father were not married in the eyes of God and the, in the eyes of people before that child was conceived. In the culture of that day, they looked at Mary and her pregnancy as one that was illegitimate. But I believe that this passage here about her interaction with Elizabeth shows the legitimacy of this pregnancy, the legitimacy of uh, her story that she had told to her parents, that she had told to Joseph, saying that I have not known a man. This pregnancy, this conception of this child came upon me through the power of God and his Holy Spirit. If there was any doubt about the nature of her pregnancy, this encounter with Elizabeth confirmed the origin of this child. Notice what it says there. When Mary showed up at Zechariah and Elizabeth's house, she knocked on the door, she greeted her cousin, and it said, John, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, who was six months old um, from conception, three months still before he was to be born, he leapt in her womb when Jesus, who had just been conceived, came and was in his presence. It goes on, it says, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, which the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit at this point in time, prior to uh, you know, the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came and indwelt all people who had trusted in Christ, the ministry of the Spirit at this time was very different. And so this was an unusual thing that the Spirit came and filled her, uh, gained control over her. And then Elizabeth said to Mary, which, how old is Elizabeth again? Uh, I mean, she's very old, right? How old is Mary? A young teenager. And then uh, this much older woman looks to this teenage girl and said, why am I so blessed that the mother of my Lord should come and visit me? Hmm. Said, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This gave legitimacy. It empowered, if you will, Mary to realize that, yes, this is not something I dreamt. This is not something that I imagined, but this is real. And here is my old, much older cousin that is confirming in me that God is doing an amazing work in and through me. Blessed is she who believed. God had called Mary to this extraordinary task through words spoken to her by an angel. But folks, 
Mary had to make a choice to believe those words. She had to make a choice to accept them as truth and to move forward and say, let it be done unto me just as you've said. I am your servant, Lord. Do whatever you want. Folks, each one of us has a choice. We can choose to trust the voice of God in our lives, or we can choose to disregard his voice, his purpose, his calling. We all have a calling. We all have a purpose. And we all have a choice as to whether or not we will listen. We will be blessed if we put our faith in God. We will be blessed if we trust him to accomplish his will and his purpose through us, in and through us. I love Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 that says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God has a purpose for each and every one of us. Just as he had for Mary. The question is, is will we choose to trust in his calling and in his purpose? Let's look at this last section of scripture that we're going to study today. Beginning in verse 46, we find Mary's song of praise, or often called the Magnificat. Verse 46 It says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humblest state of his servant for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. As I said, this song, um, which it doesn't actually say she sang it, but um, you know, we call it Mary's song. Uh, we call it the Magnificat. The interesting thing about the, the words of this this song is that it's a compilation of Old Testament allusions and quotations. And what I love about that is what it tells us about who Mary is. You see, you can't, you can't make up a song filled with Old Testament allusions and quotations if you don't know what the Old Testament taught. So here we find that she is a student of the word of God, in spite of the fact that girls weren't allowed to officially attend uh, synagogue school. She knew the word of God. 
And so when she praised God for his special outpouring of grace on her, she starts her praise with a praise that is very personal. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I love here in verse 47 how she calls the Lord her Savior, demonstrating a very intimate relationship with the Lord. He was her Savior. In verse 48, she goes on and, and uh, highlights how that the Lord has been faithful to her, has been faithful to his people uh, through many, many generations. And then in verses 49 and 50, she highlights God's power. And she talks about God's holiness. And she talks about the mercy of God. How his mercy is for those who fear him in all generations. So she, she praises God for how he has worked in her life. The second section of this Magnificat is an outpouring of praise to God, not just for her, but for all the people of Israel. You see, Mary was aware that the birth of this child, this promised one, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, she was aware that this was a fulfillment of the covenant, the promises made to Abraham. Way, way back in Genesis chapter 12, when it said that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed. That same covenant was given uh, to his son, his grandson. Eventually it was given once again to David. That all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Mary realized what an amazing thing was happening. And so she spent this time praising God for how he was using her as a part of this. We started this morning by talking about how Mary was a fa the favored one. That she found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That grace that Mary experienced personally. That she walked through those difficult circumstances that she was facing. That same grace is available to us. And I know most of you sitting under my voice today have taken the opportunity to trust in Jesus Christ and the grace that he has offered to us uh, through his sacrificial death on the cross. But this morning, I wonder, are we praising God for that grace? Are we listening to his voice and trusting him with his purpose for our life as Mary trusted him in her purpose? I cannot imagine what it must have been like as a young teenager to go through this. 
But God's grace was sufficient for her in that time and in that way. His grace is sufficient for you today as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to, to look at the life of, of Mary. And Lord, we just thank you for the grace that you demonstrated to her and the way that you used her. But Lord, we recognize that she's just a person. And we recognize that you want to use us too. And so, Father, I just pray now that as we sit here and take a moment to listen to your voice as you, you call out to us softly and tenderly, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to hear your voice, to trust your way. And whatever situation we may face today, Lord, I just pray that we would obey you with all of our heart and all of our life, no matter the circumstance, no matter the cost. Lord, that we would obey and that we would praise you as we do. We pray this in Jesus' name.